Hello and welcome back to the final episode in this first series of the Biomes podcast. So far I've had some fascinating discussions on everything from brains and biomes to babies biomes uh, to banking biomes and, and everything in between. And this week is no different. For this last episode of the series, I spoke to Professor Susan Lynch from the University of California, San Francisco. Professor Lynch is originally from Ireland, but has been working in UCSF for a number of years now. And she's one of the leading researchers in the world examining the influence of the early life microbiome on asthma development in children. The prevalence of asthma has increased hugely in the last few decades, so much so that now in the US, one in 13 people are asthmatic. Now, some interesting research suggests that some of the changing influences on our microbiomes may be influencing asthma development, such as the use of antibiotics and C-sections and other factors that influence the gut microbiome in early life. The theory that our early life microbial exposures may be associated with the development of asthma and other allergies was first proposed in the 1980s by a guy called David Strachan in what he called the hygiene hypothesis. He found that children who grew up in households with more family members, so more children in the households, were less likely to develop asthma and allergies. And he hypothesized that this was because there was more sharing of infections between the children in the household. And that this helped to train the immune system. Whereas children who grew up in smaller households didn't have this training of the immune system through exposure to infections. And therefore were more likely to develop asthma or allergies. Which are disorders involving overreactivity of the immune system. With expanding research into the human microbiome, the hygiene hypothesis has moved beyond infections. And now it's hypothesized that reduced exposure to other commensal or normal healthy microbes may also influence our risk of asthma or allergies in early life. Professor Lynch is studying this in babies and examining what microbes in the early life gut may influence the immune system and how this may influence the risk of asthma. A lot of her work isn't focusing just on what bacteria or fungi or viruses are there in the gut, but what chemicals or metabolites are they producing which may influence the immune system and the development of asthma. Her team have conducted some fascinating work showing that certain bacterial metabolites in the gut may help train certain immune cells which work in the lung in the context of asthma. She's continued this work to try and identify how the gut microbiome may be adapted or modified in early life to help prevent asthma risk in high-risk children. I spoke to her about the origins of the hygiene hypothesis, our evolving view of the microbiome as an ecosystem, and how the gut microbiome may be the new frontier in preventing and treating asthma. So a lot of your work now is focused uh, around asthma and allergies and the the early life microbiome. So this would be kind of centered around the 
what is kind of known as the hygiene hypothesis, which was kind of first proposed in the 1980s. And I didn't know much about the kind of the, the orig origins of this itself, but apparently the, the first papers was a guy called David Strachan who noticed that um, higher or bigger household sizes mm -hmm. um, was inversely related with uh, allergy and, and asthma, I think it was, uh, in these kids. Um, exactly. And he, he kind of hypothesized that it was because he, these kids were getting more exposure to, to microbes from their siblings. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the hygiene hypothesis and how that relates to um, the microbiome and, and some of the work you're doing in the early life microbiome. Yeah, and I, I can, and there's many of us in the field think that it should be actually uh, retitled the unhygienic hypothesis. <laughs> that it's, um, you know, the, the, the actual exposure, increased exposure to microbes that comes through, you know, um, kind of lower birth order, having older siblings, having greater microbial exposure in the homes that, that relates to protection against allergies and asthma development. And in fact, we've... Um, for many years have examined you know, another phenomenon, which is exposure to household pets in early life um, is protective against asthma and allergy development. And they're shown that actually having you know, dogs and to a lesser extent cats in the house um, really expands the diversity of microbes in the local environment, in house dust. And we, we joke and say, you know, one dog's worth two older brothers. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, I, I think of this if I kind of, zoom back out from this and I, I think about this uh, why it's particularly pertinent to early life is that this is that's the critical period in which we develop our microbiomes across sites across the body particularly mucosal sites in the upper airways in the gut and so if your environment is deficient of microbes that are necessary to interact with the pre-existing microbes in the system to promote health, you're on a trajectory for disease development, for microbial dysfunction and disease development. And the other thing to think about this is, you know, I think we think about, as you mentioned, kind of microbial cells in isolation. I think as microbial of microbial cells as whole, you know, genomes that provide a whole suite of functions. And then it's, it's collections of those functions that band together. Again, it, we joke in the lab and we say, forget about the candy wrapper. It doesn't really matter what it's called or you know, to some extent who encodes it. it it's thinking more about you know, networks of microbial gene functions that play well together. Um, and as a result, provide these kinds of hubs of microbial function that are necessary to modulate immune function, for example, physiological development, um, neurological health, uh, cardiovascular health. And, and we build those networks of microbial functions in very early life. So it's really critical the microbial exposures that we have in very early life because we think that that's one part of the puzzle that dictates the degree of functionality in the system, in the microbial system, in the human host. It's also critical that to, to remember that it's not just the environment, there's multiple other factors that shape which types of microbes are present and what they engage in, what they actually do, not just what functions they encode, but what they actually express and, and how, they, how they behave. And what was always striking to us was that many of the factors that we know are risk factors for asthma development in childhood are centered in the very early life period and are factors like cesarean section, antimicrobial administration, formula-fed diet, they're factors that we know shape the types and activities of microbes in the gut. 
And that's what those, those two things, maybe there's three things in there. The fact that microbiomes develop in early life, they're influenced by environmental microbial exposures and their, their types and, and activities are shaped by other exposures like diet and antimicrobials really for us focused our attentions on very early life microbial development and its relationship with immune function and asthma development as the kind of end point of that, that, that framework um, in later childhood. And I think what's becoming abundantly clear as well is that beyond um, microbes, um, you know, as we traditionally think of them kind of triggering an infectious immune response, these microbial cells are in constant contact with host immune cells. And the, the bioactive products these microbes produce in total, uh, like the, the whole vast uh, expanse of bioactive metabolites and small molecules that these microbes produce, shape the behavior of immune cells in the host system. We know this happens on a microbial, microbial cell basis. We've studied this for decades in the field of microbiology. We know that microbes can produce small molecules, A, that they can understand how many of their own kind is around and actually regulate their behavior. But those small molecules also influence the behavior of other species and not just other bacteria, fungi as well. And so mm. we've just really extended that paradigm to think about those small molecules basically are the lexicon between cells, mm. right? That, that's how cells communicate. And they, that many of those microbial-derived molecules, small molecules, also influence host cells. And the host cells talk back to the microbes through things like you know, cytokine production and antimicrobial uh, products, defensins that are produced. So it's, it, we're really at the stage now, we're, we're past the stage of description. We know that the microbiome matters, and we're now at the stage of delving into understanding the language of cell-cell communication in the human body. And I think that's what's really exciting about the field. That's it's a tall order, it's really complex, um, but I, I think that that's where we will really find um, target you know, pathways and networks of pathways, not just single pathways. I, I think what we, we really have to move away from thinking about you know, um, just pushing in on one button, on one pathway to have an effect or, or to, you know, to, to develop therapeutics. That may be useful for short-term effect. What we really need to move towards, and we are moving towards, is understanding the blueprint for this system sufficiently that we can predictably re-engineer re it using microbial cells, not alone, but networks of microbial cells that confer specific suites of functions um, to the host to predictably engineer the system through its microbial um, colonizers to promote health. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and I think you're, you're right, even though we're talking about picking things in isolation and also looking at the community, we do have to kind of break down that ecosystem to find out what those pathways are and almost build them back up again to see what, what networks are, are important. I think that's a great example is the, the pet study, which people always find very interesting when we talk about it. You know, having a pet in the home, 
is you know reduces your or sorry yeah reduces your risk of some of these auto-inflammatory conditions allergies and asthma and similar studies have been shown in kids who are grown up on farms have have less uh, um less less risk of these uh, disorders mm -hmm. as well so so what is it in these more kind of microbial environments are there specific species that are we're missing from dogs and cats is it certain things they're producing or is it just this total diversity um because we, we also need to think in the context of in infection versus inflammation. We don't want to be exposed to too many things. You know, years and years ago, we, we were dying much younger from, from infections. Or people in the, in the developed world, or the developing world, sorry, are more prone to dying from infection. So how do we meet that balance of having a really diverse kind of microbial environment versus being exposed to, to dangerous infections? It's, you know, farming exposures, cats and dogs, and what we've also shown is in the inner city, there's a, a similar gradient of microbial exposure. And in fact, those that are exposed to cockroaches and mice um, in, the, in the inner city tend to have greater bacterial diversity in their homes and fewer uh, reduced risk of allergy and asthma. And what's really striking to me is that in all these cases, they're all you know, mammalian or rodent you know, or insect vectors. So they are, they're, the exposures that are protective are um, basically other um, mammalian or animal uh, vectors that shed microbes into the environment. So I do think that there's um, a degree of, there's, there's specificity to the exposure that's protective. It's not, for example, necessarily all diversity that's protective, but it does seem to be focused or are concentrated on other animal and insect vectors that have kind of already funneled through microbes through mm. the system. Um, the other thing that we've been pursuing and thinking about is that um, it, 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 this is not a static or it's, it's not a, a simple interaction as well. And one of the, the concepts we've been pursuing is whether the pre-existing microbiome kind of governs the interaction with the environmental microbiome. So for example, if you have a pathogenic early life microbial uh, colonization in your gut, does that mean that you actually accumulate a specific group of organisms into your gut microbiome as opposed to anything that's present? It, does that drive a strong selective pressure for specific organisms to join the party, the microbial party in the gut microbiome, for example, as it develops. And, and we, we do have evidence for that. So it's really not simple. It's, it's not just about diversity. Um, it's really thinking in terms of interactions between pre-existing microbes and who they permit to join their network um, as the microbiome develops. Um, the other thing I would point to and make a really, really good point about, you know, kind of how do we understand infection and whether it's, you know, too much exposure, too little exposure. Um, on a similar vein, more recent work we've, we've published has, has kind of taken a similar approach and thought, well, does your pre-existing microbiome actually govern your susceptibility to um, infection by a new microbial encounter? And so we've done this in a very large cohort of over um, 3,200 upper airway samples in a, in a cohort of more than 400 children with asthma, asking A, are there different microbial colonization patterns that repeat across individuals over time um, that are sustained over time? Remember, asthma is a chronic disease, and we're really trying to understand the chronicity of the disease. The other thing we're trying to understand is why some children 
are prone to asthma exacerbation. And so the concept here is that perhaps there's specific colonization patterns in the upper airways that govern the interaction with encountered viral infection, which we know is a trigger for, for asthma. But the, the conundrum is that not all children who have an asthma exacerbation have a viral infection, and some who have a viral infection don't always have an asthma exacerbation. So there's something there that's modulating the system. And our, our hypothesis in that case is that it's the pre-existing microbiome, the upper airways of those children. And we have evidence for that. We published it last year in that very large cohort. There were just six distinct colonization patterns in the upper airway. Um, so again, you can think of these as kind of six distinct networks of microbes that kind of set up shop in the airways. Uh, the majority of children were uh, found to have an upper airway colonized by uh, Staphylococcus or Moraxella. And then there were others that had uh, microbiomes dominated by Haemophilus, Streptococcus, Aloeococcus, and Carinibacterium. And when we looked at whether those children um, exacerbated or not, the, the children with Moraxella in their upper airways, highly dominated airways, but Moraxella, they were significantly more likely to exacerbate, say, you know, significantly more likely to have markers of eosinophilia, which is a, an inflammatory response that's associated with allergic asthma. And so compared to any of the other groups in, in that population. And so when we think about it, you know, these are, these are pathogenic organisms. Um, and what we found was that it wasn't just one Moraxella. There was, we likened it to a swarm of Moraxella in the upper airways of these children. So, um, and, and these, this Moraxella dominated community was highly stable over time, irrespective of whether the children exacerbated or not, we still saw this network of Moraxella in the upper airways of these children. So our hypothesis is this is a really resilient pathogenic microbial community that's driving epithelial damage in the upper airways of these children. And epithelial damage is a breeding ground for more, um, uh, for, for exacerbation and a more pronounced response to viral infection. So we think that the, the carpet of Moraxella in the upper airways is already damaging the system. And then when a virus is encountered, that that system is primed for a more uh, pronounced response to that viral infection, which leads to exacerbation in those children. And we don't see that in other colonization patterns. And, and importantly, the other colonization patterns it's a diversity of organisms that are found in those, in those microbiomes, suggesting that they may be more, I don't want to say healthy, but they will interact differently with the immune response. So the next step is really layering on when we have these colonization patterns, what are these microbes engaged in? What are, they, what are their activities? And how is the host responding to those activities? Um, and how does that relate to the propensity to exacerbate or to not exacerbate? And can we leverage that understanding of what promotes stability in um, the disease in, in children to actually uh, reduce exacerbation rates in, in children who are predisposed because of microbiological colonization patterns in their upper airways? Brilliant. And I know you, you've explored some of these pathways of certain metabolites that some of these mm -hmm. bacteria produce that can be protective or can be yeah. um, can worsen uh, some of these responses. But maybe we can draw it back a bit. And for people that aren't 
so aware, how does asthma work from the body's point of view? So there's, it's, it's an immune response whereby, um, you know, the, the airways or the kind of epithelial cells in the lungs begin to kind of attack themselves because they're exposed to certain microbes. You're, you mentioned yeah. viruses. Yeah. Um, how does, how yeah. does that work? Yeah, I mean, asthma is, is defined as kind of reversible bronchoconstriction. So the, uh, that's exactly right. Exactly, as you said, a kind of a pronounced response to inhaled antigens and allergens. So you can think about cat dander, you know, house dust mite, cockroach antigen. Um, they can trigger this kind of uh, response, which is both bronchial uh, constriction, but also an inflammatory response, a kind of a ramped up inflammatory response to those otherwise typically innocuous um, exposures that everybody breathes in with every breath. Um, I think, you know, what's really exciting about the field is we're starting to think more holistically about the human body in the context of asthma and in fact, in the context of other diseases like neurological diseases, autism spectrum disorder, cardiovascular diseases. We're now looking at the gut as potentially uh, a novel um, target for interventions that could actually modulate airway disease, which is really out of the box thinking. But when you stand back and, and think about what we've learned over the last 15 years in the field, it makes perfect sense. The gut houses the largest number of uh, and types of microbes in the human body. It integrates ingested um, exposures. Diet, which we know is related to a multitude of diseases, is really you know, processed through the gut microbiome. Um, and that's what drives the molecular output that governs the physiology of the host. Um, and so the, the, the studies that you refer to was you know, really for us trying to move across scales, moving from understanding populations of humans and the kind of the signature microbial networks or microbiome states that relate to relative uh, health or disease. And then digging down deeper to understand the, the types of organisms, the pathways that are involved, and more importantly, that molecular lexicon of what is governing the immune function in the system that relates to whether these children are healthy or go on to develop allergies and asthma. So it's, I, I liken this to thinking across kind of gradients, right? We're thinking of across spatial gradients when we think about the effect of the gut microbiome on the airways. We're thinking across temporal gradients when we're thinking about very early life gut microbes and their activities priming immune function in a manner that relates to disease development years later in childhood. And I, and I, I think if we, if we, really focus our efforts in that framework, not just looking under the streetlights, not just looking in the airways at an airway disease, but thinking more holistically about you know, the, the, the contributors to that manifestation in the airways. I think we've got a, a, a much better um, uh, likelihood of success um, in terms of developing new therapeutics for a multitude of diseases. I, you know, I, I, I always, again, liken this to something people understand fairly well. You get, um, you know, blooms and lakes, you know, algal blooms and lakes, lake eutrophication. I always remind people that what led to that manifestation in the lake was what was happening in a farmer's field, maybe a mile upstream. 
It doesn't have to happen at the site of manifestation. There, there is activity there that's contributing to the, the, the disease, but we have to think outside the box and how um, other sites, particularly those with very high microbial activity and molecular output may contribute to these diseases that we see at remote mucosal and organ sites. Brilliant. I like, I like that analogy of the lake and the, um, and the mile upstream, because I was going to ask that next about, you've talked a lot about the gut affecting asthma, which is a airway disorder. So maybe we don't know all the pathways, but can you speculate or give us an example or two of, of how that happens? Are there, um, chemicals and metabolites being produced in the gut which transport through the the bloodstream to the lungs is it yeah. immune cells that are being trained and go to the lungs or or how does that kind of connection work where is the pathway and i would say very likely all of the above um <laughs> and that's what we joke it's like everybody's right you know that yeah. all these pathways that we focused on in isolation contribute to a much bigger picture of what is happening. But I can tell you is what we, what we do know. Um, so we do know that there are microbes, specific strains of bifidobacterium and enterococcus in the one-month-old gut microbiome that produce a lipid called 1213-dihome that is at very high concentration in in um, an aberrant gut microbiome in one month old babies who go on to develop allergies and asthma at much higher rates than children who don't have that gut microbiome and don't have those strains with that production capacity. We know from mouse models that if we inject that one lipid into the gut of a mouse that, and then subject that mouse to insults into the airways, that um, the mice who receive that one lipid into their gut have a far more profound allergic inflammatory response in their airways. What we've shown is that that lipid does circulate through the system, but we find it at higher concentrations in the airways than what we actually injected into the gut. So either it bioaccumulates in the airways or its presence in the airways drives up more production of that lipid locally in the airways. It seems to have some tropism for the airways. But that lipid, um, in a dose-dependent manner, reduces regulatory T cells. So they're the, the group of critical T cells that put the brakes on allergic inflammation, essentially. So if you have very few of them, or if they're not producing IL-10, you don't dampen down allergic inflammation. And so um, what we've also shown is that introduction of the genes from the bacteria in the high-risk gut microbiome that make that lipid, if you introduce those genes into the gut of a mouse, you can actually enhance its allergic uh, airway response to allergen challenge. So showing that this is just one example, one example of microbial genes and a product that really skews immune, dis immune function in a manner that enhances airway allergic inflammation. We've also shown the flip side of that. We've shown that if you um, introduce a lactobacillus species into the gut of mice, you can actually protect their airways against challenges, either allergen challenge or viral respiratory infection, which is important for asthma, obviously. And so what we've in fact shown in those studies is that um, two days after you infect a mouse with a viral um, respiratory syncytial virus, an asthmogenic virus, 
the mice who received the lactobacillus exhibit this profound capacity for anti-inflammatory lipids in their serum compared to mice that get the control mice who just get PBS, phosphate buffered serum, uh, um, saline. And what is really important is we've, we've in, shown that if you incubate dendritic cells, which are the group of cells that kind of educate the T cells and, and help them decide what they're gonna be when they grow up, um, if you incubate dendritic cells from bone marrow in the serum of the mice who got the lactobacillus or the mice who got the PBS, the, um, the dendritic cells incubated with the serum of the lactobacillus supplemented mice are significantly um, reduced in their inflammatory response to viral infection. Mm -hmm. So the product circulating in the mouse whose gut microbiome we've altered really dampen down the inflammatory response to an infectious event. And what's really important is we dissected that apart as well. And we looked at a specific polyunsaturated fatty acid, docosahexaenoic acid, which uh, we showed could re recapitulate features of that down, dampening down of inflammatory response in those dendritic cells. In fact, that lipid seems to be um, really responsible for reducing the activation of those dendritic cells, so a critical you know, first step in setting the inflammatory uh, cascade in motion. So there we've got two examples of um, a microbial-derived lipid in one case that really drives T regulatory dysfunction and enhances allergic inflammation in the airways. And another example of where we manipulate the gut microbiome and induce a, a metabolic milieu in the circulation that protects against allergic asthma inflammation. And that at least one of the components that is, is driving that protection is a polyunsaturated fatty acid. We don't know in that case that they're actually being directly made by the microbes. That's work that needs to be done. But certainly the manipulation and the change in the microbial composition is associated with that altered capacity to respond to airway insults. Interesting. And, and how specific is the time window that you're talking about? So it's really important, I suppose, that this is happening in early life, that these, the immune cells that you talked about, these Tregs, um, you know, you, you spoke about the, the immune cells being trained and learning what they're going to be when they grow up. Uh, that happens in early life. We know from some studies, some of it might happen in utero, some of it happens in the first few weeks of life, some of it happens in the first few months of life and a bit later on. So how important is this in the context of asthma and what is that time window? Yeah, that's, that's something many of us are trying to define. It certainly appears that within the first two and a half to three years of life, seems to be the critical window and prenatal as well seems to be the, the critical window of immune priming and kind of setting the stage. Um, I think it's really interesting that that's the period in which the gut microbiome develops and the airway microbiome as well develops. And by three years of age, it kind of has reached a, at least a phylogenetic distribution steady state where, you know, yes, it does continue to evolve functionally, but there's, you know, you've gotten to a steady state in terms of, of kind of burden and phylogenetic distribution. Um, we, we've recently um, really address this, this question of when do these microbial encounters begin? And 
if there are microbes present, A, are they viable in, the, uh, in utero, in the prenatal intestine? And, and B, um, do they have the capacity to modulate immune function? Do you, we know that by 13 weeks of age, memory T cells are already evident in the human fetal intestine. That's been shown over and over. And remember, memory T cells is kind of like the blueprint for how your immune response is, is set up. And so we, we examined this and found um, multiple lines of evidence that refute the sterile kind of um, uh, fetal hypothesis. So we, we through um, qPCR, fluorescent in situ hybridization, and direct um, observation with scanning electron microscopy, provided evidence for the presence of microbes, not in every human fetal intestinal sample examined, but in subsets. Um, and we found specific microbes present. The two major signals that we detected was a, a lactobacillus and a micrococcus, uh, micrococcus luteus. We went on to show that the presence of those distinct organisms in utero is associated with very different innate and adaptive immune responses. And in the case of microbes, it included uh, host genes that are known to respond to microbial bacterial presence, uh, CXCL1, 2, and 3. Um, so we, we, from our scanning electron microscopy data, could see that these very small cells that were the right shape and size for bacterial cells. They range from kind of 1.3 to about four micrometers, all of which are smaller than human cells. Blood cells are, are really the smallest that we would expect to find there, and they're about five micrometers. Um, you know, they were intact, and they were tightly clustered in these pods that were encased in polysaccharides. So these were not a, a contaminant. They were actually embedded in meconium. It's an incredibly sparse signal, an incredibly small number of cells. But because we saw intact cellular structures, we asked, could we isolate those organisms? And um, based on kind of, we use 16S to, to tell us what we should be going after, what these organisms could be. Um, and that's where we got our micrococcus and lactobacillus leads. And then using um, selective media for micrococcus, for example, we tried to culture these organisms from meconium, from fetal meconium, and we drew a blank. We could not culture anything. And we scratched our heads and thought, why not? And then we thought, culture is really to culture something, you have to think about the prevailing conditions in that niche. And so when we added uh, pregnancy hormones and uh, monocytes, so immune cells, to the meconium in the context of the micrococcus selective media, then we cultured micrococcus luteus from those fetal samples. We went on to show that that fetal micrococcus luteus is genetically distinct from other human-associated micrococcus luteus. It, it, it has you know, pathways for um, uh, um, catechol um, degradation that we don't see in other ones, which we think allows it to um, uh, metabolize pregnancy hormones. And in fact, that fetal strain can grow on pregnancy hormones, but to really low levels. But the, the organisms, it, its phylogenetic counterparts that are in culture collections cannot. So it mm -hmm. seems like it has this proclivity for, for growing to very small numbers, um, in this niche. Really, 
you know, reflecting what we've seen in the, in the actual SEM. We also, which was really compelling to us, show that that organism can actually survive in antigen-presenting cells. Again, the culture collection organisms cannot. This organism can actually survive in antigen-presenting cells. And so that suggests to us that that's one way very specialized microbes may actually uh, gain access um, in a protected milieu in an actual immune cell to access the fetal intestine. Um, and then the last thing we showed was that we, we made this observation that when micrococcus was detected in the samples, we saw a greater number of these memory T cells in that context. And we showed that specifically, the, again, the fetal micrococcus isolate and not its phylogenetic counterparts can actually downregulate an inflammatory cytokine by those uh, PLZF, those those memory T cells from the fetal gut, suggesting that it can, it can live in the fetal in intestine, it can get there by antigen presenting cells, which traffic around the system, and it can downregulate inflammatory responses by those memory T cells, perhaps in situ. So, so we are, we're really excited by this. It, it suggests that our encounters with microbes start prenatally, we certainly have seen with, in a completely independent um, study that meconium, which is formed in utero and is the first bowel movement of a newborn baby, that the types of microbes in meconium of high risk for asthma babies and healthy babies are significantly different. Hmm. So it suggests to us, it's, it's leading us towards a biology that implicates intergenerational microbial transmission, and the mother's health status and microbiome as being key in that transmission of microbes that then set the stage and educate the immune response and dictate downstream health outcomes in childhood. I think that's fascinating that a mother's microbiome, or at least her environment, can can impact uh, not only the infant microbiome, but also maybe their health status, for example, risk of allergy later on. And what it seems, you mentioned intergenerational, what it seems is that is, uh, could happen over many generations. And I know yes. um, that's been shown in, uh, by uh, the Sonnenbergs um, as nice. well, that we have this kind yes. of yeah, intergenerational loss of microbes, especially exactly. in our westernized societies. If we don't have uh, you know, enough exposure to fibers and these microbiota accessible carbohydrates, they call, we kind of tend to lose them over time. And that's what what could be happening in our westernized environments. Um, and I, I think it's more than that. I absolutely agree that diet plays a very large role in this. But think about all of the other exposures that have changed over the last 100 years. Uh, antimicrobial use, climate change. You, climate is going to dictate environmental microbial exposures. We know that there are studies showing that water availability, wind speeds, influence microbial exposures in urban aerosols, for example. And so thinking about the confluence of influences that are changing our interactions with environmental microbes and host-associated microbes, it's really you know, teasing all of that apart that will, will lead us towards um, strategies to undo that uh, intergenerational microbial loss that we've suffered over the last several uh, generations. Yeah. So maybe that's where we'll kind of resolve it and, and finish off is how, what are these future strategies? We know we, we want more of this diversity and to, 
maybe go back to my more complex question at the start. We want more diversity, but we don't want to have so much diversity that we're ex we're kind of susceptible to infection uh, as people in, in developing countries are. So how do we introduce that diversity uh, in early life? Is it through probiotics? Is it through, you know, some of this directly through some of these metabolites? Uh, and how do we meet that balance of introducing diversity to reduce the risk of allergy, for example, um, or, you know, at the expense of um, maybe yeah. being prone to infection? So what I would say is um, it's not, again, it's not simply diversity. It is what are the functional losses that characterize a trajectory towards a specific disease development and which microbes that consistently co-associate in networks to provide that function in, in healthy aged matched um, um, children or adults, can we group together to reinstate those functional losses? So it, it, I, I would argue that it's not necessarily about diversity, but it's really about function. And then how can we promote and sustain those functions through additional um, efforts like dietary uh, supplementation, dietary intervention, to make sure that those microbes are not only there and sustained, but they are producing the molecules that we know modulate immune function and ultimately promote health. So there's... There's multiple parts to it, um, but they have to include kind of symbiotic approaches where we reintroduce microbial species that we know are found in the healthy state and functions that who, whose products are critical to promotion of health. Brilliant. And so you could, could, could you see that in the future? You've identified maybe these markers in really early life uh, that might uh, predispose a child to you know, getting asthma or, or an allergy, these would then be the candidates maybe for a symbiotic, for example, that you said, or some sort of other intervention to renormalize that trajectory. Is that how it works? Yeah, and I mean, that's how we've been thinking about it for many years. In fact, we, we've, by way of disclosure, I, I've designed a, a polymicrobial cocktail that is currently undergoing clinical trials. Right. Um, the idea being that it is introduced on the first day of birth, the, the day of birth, to high risk for allergy and asthma babies to shape metabolic output from the microbiome and who gets to join the party as the microbiome develops over time right. with the ultimate goal that by the time that microbiome reaches kind of steady state by two and a half or three years of age, it is a resilient, healthy microbiome that has promoted appropriate immune development and prevents disease. Wow. And is that high risk determined by um, family yeah. history or is it determined yeah. by a microbiome marker or? Uh... Yeah, um, both. I would oh, say at oh, this stage. Right. So certainly having um, at least one parent with asthma puts you in the high risk category. We know that. So that's a great first step for screening those who are at high risk. But we also now have these biomarkers like, for example, 1213-dihome and the mm. early life gut microbiome and a microbiome that is depleted of a multitude of functions as additional risk factors that we can monitor in these children as their gut microbiome develops in the intervention group versus the placebo group. Right. So we've got multiple 
ways to approach this um, to identify high risk and whether we are doing good, whether we are actually um, uh, adding the appropriate functions and reducing the um, metabolic, mo the molecules that actually promote immune dysfunction in those children. But would that show up on the first day of life that, or, or is it kind of much no, later on right. that that, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right, so that, that's, that's how we can monitor though. Right. We can right. ask whether we are doing good, whether we are, um, introducing the functions that are necessary and whether we're producing the molecules like the polyunsaturated fatty acids, for example, that we know protect against disease development. So that is it, the last episode in the series. Uh, I'd just like to thank everyone who's listened in to any of the episodes, all of the episodes or part of, of any episodes. Uh, it's been great to talk about the human microbiome to so many experts in the field uh, and to get some great feedback from everyone listening. So I hope to come back with a second series in a few months time. Uh, in the meantime, if you could like and share and listen in, uh, that would be great and I hope to be able to come back with biomes for season two. Thanks very much. <laughs>